it was not the first time or the last time that I ever heard the comment. Let me give you the details. I was a church planter in Idaho Falls, Idaho, and I was going door to door to let people know that we were starting a new church and invite them to our opening. I came to a door of an older lady. I told her about the church. I gave her a brochure. I invited her to say, come and join us. We'd love to have you. And she responded in a way that I've long grown accustomed to. I've heard it so many times now, it's almost rote for me. She said something in her mind. I'm sure it was profound. It goes like this. I will never enter the door of a church because it's filled with judgmental hypocrites who want to run everyone's lives. Anybody ever heard that before? I mean, I, I, you heard it? Okay, so you, yeah, it's, it's a common one. In fact, it's, uh, her comments communicate the sentiment of millions of unchurched Canadians and Americans. They've seen the hypocrisy and others who simply have this characterization of their mind of what church is like. They don't even know how Christians in some cases, and they have these characterizations of what we're like and, and we're supposed to be like. And in fact, this position, her statement, is right at the top of the list of reasons that people do not go to church. It's filled with hypocrites. Why would I go? The criticism's not completely without merit, though I think it misses the point of what a hypocrite actually is. We'll talk about that later. I've grown up in the church and I've seen more than my share of hypocrites based on this popular conception of the word. I've seen the issues and the problems and the dark side of church, so I'm not ignorant to what's going on. But based on the conception of the world, of what that word means, I must confess that I have been one myself on more than one occasion. And in fact, if I was to investigate further, I would probably find out that you have been one yourself on more than one occasion. And as a preacher, I preach week after week, and I can assure you that many of the topics that I speak on, I have not yet perfected myself. And that's one of the challenges of speaking, because as I'm speaking, I go, well, I, I'm not sure I'm qualified to speak to this issue. Even the Apostle Paul says of himself in 1 Corinthians 1, 13 to 15, says, I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Jesus Christ. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ came into the world to save sinners of what? Of who I am chief. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. But whether their perception is right or wrong, the belief that the church is full of hypocrites is pervasive and it must be addressed. And it brings up our challenge as the church and as Christians. On the one hand, we're called to become more and more like Jesus himself. And yet on the other hand, we're called to reach people who are sinners like ourselves. C.S. Lewis reminds us the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ to make them little Christ. And if they're not doing that, all the cathedrals and clergy and missions and sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. So to accomplish that, we must help them to respond to their objections. If we want to draw people to Christ, we have to address it because it's a hindrance to many people. So in that light, I want to respond to this question. Why should you go to a church that might have hypocrites? And probably does. And we will look at three responses and see that Jesus condemns hypocrisy and that the church rests on the person of Jesus Christ and that is God's business of transforming sinful people. So let's look at our three responses to our question. Why should you go to a church that might have hypocrites? And the first one is this. Jesus condemned hypocrisy. 
One of the most well-known biblical passages of Christianity is Matthew 7, 1 to 5. Every unbeliever knows this passage and they will cite it frequently. These verses are part of the well-known Sermon on the Mount given by Christ early in his ministry. It says this, and as soon as I say it, you go, oh yeah, 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 I know that verse. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will clearly see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The context of this passage is important because it's probably one of the most abused passages of scripture that you will ever hear. Jesus is not saying that we should not judge, period. For instance, he says in John 7, 24, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. It's the same word, krino, same Greek word translated judge in both passages. In fact, the verses before this passage give us a list of kingdom laws that define who his followers are called to be. In other words, he's giving us these new laws for this new kingdom that he's formulating and presenting. He says uh, the law in Matthew chapter 5, 17 to 18, I do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in other words, a law says there's a standard which we all are held accountable to. And the essence of hypocrisy is holding other people to account for the very expectations and laws that you yourself are violating. That's hypocrisy. Of all the groups that Jesus condemns most, the Pharisees at the top of the list, and hypocrisy is one of his main issues with them. You did not want to be a Pharisee in Jesus' world. He speaks badly of those guys. Of all of them, they get the worst condemnation. But notice that the Pharisees were condemned by Christ for their self-righteousness. Jesus gives the most dramatic condemnation of the Pharisees in Matthew 23. So for instance, in verses 2 to 4 of that chapter, he says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Later in the chapter, he gives his greatest condemnation of the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the laws and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumum, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Verse 25, he jumps down. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and indulgence. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. 29, he says this. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, hypocrites. You get a pattern here going on? You picked up on that? There seems to be this theme that he's presenting here. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And then he uses the word, your whitewashed sepulchers, meaning you're beautiful and bright on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. You see, the Pharisees thought that good work could save them. They would often soften, redefine, or even ignore Old Testament laws so they could say, I'm living by those standards. And they thought that their good work somehow made them better. This made them a very judgmental group. They were very pompous and upright and judgmental. And we see the pride even on how they looked down on others, including Jesus himself. Now, our word hypocrisy comes from 
the Greek theater. In fact, our word hypocrisy is a direct transliteration of the Greek, meaning you take the English letters from the Greek letters and you get hypocrisy. So if, by saying hypocrite, you've, you know Greek. It's a Greek word. It referred to actors who were wearing a mask, acting in plays or an invention of the Greeks. Now, most of us have seen the masks that Greeks, the Greeks used. In older days, theaters often had masks of comedy and tragedy. You used to see them all the time when you go to a theater of the two faces, the two masks. The actor was playing a character that was not actually him. Only males acted in Greek plays. So even if they were playing a female part, they were wearing a mask of a female, but they were speaking out from underneath it. The actor spoke from behind the mask. That's the essence of hypocrisy as Christ uses the word. It's kind of like a fake or facade. What the audience saw was a mask with the voice coming from behind. They did not see the real person. And he's playing a part. It's a characterization of a person. But also, the point we learn here is there's a right kind of judgment that does not involve hypocrisy. Jesus is not condemning moral values. The overall claim that the church is full of hypocrites is somewhat misleading. That is that we all struggle with ongoing sin does not justly yield the verdict of hypocrisy. A hypocrite is someone who does things he claims he does not do. And since we see sin in the lives of Christians, they rust to judgment that therefore these people are hypocrites. But the context of Matthew 7 that we saw earlier indicates that we must make some judgments. In order to charge a person with being a hypocrite is itself a judgment. And that is one of the problems with the argument. You cannot condemn a person to be a hypocrite without yourself judging another person and possibly yourself being a hypocrite in the process. Hypocrisy is not equal to sin. R.C. Sproul argues this. He said, the inverted logic goes something like this. All hypocrites are sinners. John is a sinner. Therefore, John is a hypocrite. And anyone who knows the laws of logic knows that this syllogism is not valid. If we would simply change the charge from the churches full of hypocrites to the churches full of sinners, we would be quick to plead guilty. The church is the only institution that I know of that requires an admission of being a sinner in order to be a member. The church is filled with sinners because the church is the place where sinners who confess their sins come to find redemption from their sins. All of us have been hypocrites at some point. Even with this broader definition that the world uses, I suspect most of us have nonetheless been guilty of hypocrisy at some point. And even the accusers fail at this very point. But there's also a danger of arguing that because everyone sins and we can hold no one to account, there must be an objective standard of morality. Otherwise, we drift away to hedonism and all forms of immorality. And I think that's part of our culture is that we have lowered the standard so low because we know we're all sinners. We've lowered it so low that we no longer have hold anyone to account. And even though the hypocrites may be sinning for not living by his own standards, it does not itself mean that the standard is wrong. The hypocrite may be at fault for not holding himself accountable to the standard he is using to judge others. But the sinner may be at fault for failing to meet the objective moral standard. Cliff Connect in his book, Give Me an Answer, he writes this. We all either try to hide our bad sides or try to make them look good. But deep inside, we all know that we fall short of living the way that we should. No one can escape the charge of hypocrite. No one except Jesus himself. And it's only through Christ can we escape the penalty due to our hypocrisy. 
Ruth Bell Graham, the wife of international evangelist Billy Graham, she passed away and he did recently as well. She shares the true account of a young college student from India by the name of Pashi who once told her, I would like to believe in Christ. We of India would like to believe in Christ, but we've never seen a Christian who was like Christ. Ruth Graham says that she consulted Dr. Akbar Hogg about what might be the best response to Pashi's challenge, and Hogg responded decisively, that's quite simple. I would tell Pashi, I'm not offering you Christians. I'm offering Christ. There's a second response to our question, why should you go to a church that might have hypocrites? And it's this, Christianity rests or falls on the person of Jesus Christ. This is central to the essence of our faith. He says this in Matthew 16. He says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, that's a t- that Son of Man is a takeoff of Daniel chapter 7, which refers to a deity. And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by my flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I could preach a whole sermon on that, but I'm just going to highlight a few things. Christianity does not stand or fall on how Christians act. This passage tells us that the church is built by Jesus. It is His, and how we live and our act is important, but we do not base our belief on how we act. As Josh McDowell has said this, Christianity does not stand or fall on the way Christians have acted throughout history or are acting today. Christianity stands or falls on the person of Jesus, and Jesus was not a hypocrite. He lived consistently with what he taught, and at the end of his life, he challenged those who lived with him night and day for over three years to point out any hypocrisy in him. His disciples were silent because there was none. And since Christianity depends on Jesus, it is incorrect to try to invalidate the Christian faith by pointing to horrible things done in the name of Christianity. But the church is founded on who Jesus is. The question Jesus asked Peter is, who do you say that I am? And Peter rightfully proclaims, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, immediately, Jesus affirms Peter's statement by saying, you are Peter, upon this rock I, build my, I will build my church. Now, there's something of a wordplay going on here. The name Peter means little rock, while the word that he uses for rock means a massive, substantial rock. So, what is the rock that Jesus builds his church on? Now, the Catholic Church says it's on Peter. But if you read the context, it's built on the statement that Peter just made. The rock that the church is built on is that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is what the church is built on. That is the rock-solid foundation that we establish our faith. The presence of hypocrites does not invalidate who Jesus was. It is my position that most of the people who use the hypocrisy argument use it more as, as an excuse than an actual reason. I don't think the church has any more hypocrites than anywhere else. In fact, I would argue that we have even less on the whole. There are some in the church who claim to be Christians who do not follow Jesus in any meaningful sense of the word. 
That does not speak to the nature of the whole church. Others may not be true believers at all. Either way, it does not change the reality of who Jesus is and the transforming grace that he offers to us. There's an old cartoon animated movie called Fantastic Mr. Fox that came out in 2009. It's an animated comedy film based on Ronald Dahl's children novel with the same name. And the story is about crafty Mr. Fox who steals food from farmers. While raiding a squab farm one day, Mr. Fox's wife, Felicity, trigger a trap and become caged. And Felicity tells Fox that she's pregnant and she pleads with him to find a safer job once they escape. And Fox becomes a newspaper columnist and moves his family into a big hole at the base of a tree. But two years, or 12 for Fox years, after promising Felicity that he would quit stealing, Fox returns to his old ways, and every night he sneaks out to steal from local farmers, and the farmers eventually get fed up with Mr. Fox's thieving ways, so they dig their way into Fox's home. Fox and his family huddle underground with nowhere to go, and one night Felicity tells Fox, Twelve fox years ago, you made a promise to me while we were caged inside that fox trap and if, that if we survived, you would never steal another chicken, turkey, goose, duck, or a squab, whatever they are, and I believed you. And she starts to cry. Why did you lie to me? And his response is profound, because I'm a wild animal, Fox replies. His wife encounters, but you're also a husband and father, but Mr. Fox says, I'm just trying to tell you the truth about myself. Just like Fox couldn't change his nature as a wild animal, neither can we when we have sinful hearts. We are all sinners. Going to church alone does not fix that, does not change that. We have to change our hearts. The Bible says in order to change who we are, God must change our hearts. It tells us that a true follower of Jesus has been changed through regeneration. One such passage is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. says that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. There has to be a transformation of the individual heart. And we have people in the church where God is in that process of that transformation because at the core, I'm a wild creature. I'm a sinner saved by grace. There's a third response to the question, why should you go to church that might have hypocrites? And that is this, God is in the business of transforming sinful people. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. The apostle tells us this, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, or thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God pretty comprehensive list there and I'm sure he could add to it and that is what some of you what's the word were but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord most of us virtually all of us could not inherit the kingdom of God until Jesus came and he washed us he sanctified us and he justifies us in the name of the Lord the point is this we're all sinners dependent on God's incomprehensible grace notice these verses tell us what we once were when we give our lives to Jesus something changes within us it says we're washed we're sanctified and justified we're changed our hearts are different but we need to note several things as we understand this. There are no morally perfect human beings. We cannot achieve God's perfect standard. 
It's unattainable. And that was the lie of the Pharisees, thinking they could achieve it on their own efforts. As Paul says in Romans chapter 7, 22 and following, he says, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. New Testament word for grace shares its root with the word for gift. The word for grace is charis. The word for gift is charisma. They mean essentially the same thing. The idea is God gives us what we cannot achieve on our own merit and through our own works. It has to be attained through grace. Salvation is a free gift granted to all who believe in Jesus Christ. Salvation is not earned by good works. The mistake of the Pharisees is that they believed that their works could save them. And Jesus and Paul give us a far, far better alternative. As Robert Cook says, we learn that God the Father has chosen to deal with his church on the basis of this grace. We can describe this principle of grace by using a contrast. Instead of motivating his children to honor the family, saying, good, and I will love and bless you, God has said, I have loved and blessed you, therefore do. He follows the same pattern, salvation for you not say, be good, and I will save you, but he said, I will save you that you may be good. God treats us as righteous even when we don't deserve it. Grace means that God gives us what we don't deserve and cannot achieve on our own. Grace grants us the righteousness of Jesus Christ and treats us as he does Jesus based on our connection with him. Grace is a gift. It's given freely. We cannot achieve it. God's grace frees us then to serve God out of gratitude. The response that God desires from us is a life of spontaneous love and service. It's now not a matter of saying, I will do these things out of genuine thankfulness for having been loved and served. The placing of such a plan involves a tremendous advantage, and from a human standpoint, at least some risk. The advantage is that each member of God's family is freed from the anxiety of maintaining status or gaining merit, and he can direct his whole energy to the best performance of the family business, which is the glory of God. You don't have to spend all your time going, oh, I'm, woe is me, I'm inadequate, I'm weak, I can't do it. We can spend our energy because God's grace says, look, I declare you and treat you as righteousness. Yeah, you didn't deserve it, you don't earn it, but by golly, you're free to serve me. The element of risk advice is out of the fact that the most sacred things in life can be the most profaned. The dangers of some that may interpret this gracious liberty as an invitation to do as they want, a liberty and license to sin, which misses the point, whereas others may say, well, we're going to force it with legalistic codes, returning us right back to the role of the Pharisees. Grace is wrongly understood when it's interpreted as the absence of ruling principles or rules proper. Thus, the proper response to grace is a matter of motivation and enablement. This means that grace involves, I want to keep the rules because of what I've received attitude, rather than I must keep the rules in order to receive attitude. The freedom of grace forces a true spirituality rather than a spirituality of necessity, convenience, or smugness. It will prevent Christian love from becoming laxness or sentimentality, and will keep holiness from becoming carping criticism or unapproachable conceit. It provides an atmosphere in which the Holy Spirit can conform the Christian to the image of Christ. The Old Testament law was good in this sense. It reveals to us God's nature, and it reveals to us his moral standard. 
but it was weak in that it could not produce the very lifestyle that it demanded. It could only show us how inadequate and flawed that we really are. The new grace, on the other hand, does something altogether different. Romans 8, 1 to 3 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh. This grace has implications in all of your life. Miloslav Volf wrote this. He said, imagine you have no job, no money. You live cut off from the rest of society, a world ruled by poverty and violence. Your skin is the wrong color and you have no hope that any of this will change. And around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Its gilded goods are flaunted before your eyes on TV screens and in a thousand ways. Society tells you every day that you're worthless because you have no achievement. You're a failure. And you know that you will continue to be a failure because there's no way to achieve tomorrow what you have not managed to achieve today. And your dignity is shattered and your soul is empowered in the darkness of despair. But the gospel tells you that you are not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you count even more than more that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely, irrespective of anything you have achieved or failed to achieve. Imagine now this gospel, not simply proclaimed but embodied in a community, justified by sheer grace, it seeks to justify by grace those declared unjust by society's implacable laws of achievement. Imagine, furthermore, this community determined to infuse the wider culture along with the political and economic institutions with the message that it seeks to embody and proclaim. And this is justification by grace, proclaimed and practiced. That's the church. That's us. Sinners saved by grace and living by grace and extending grace to others. Grace frees us to devote our full attention to the family business, which is becoming more, more like Christ and bringing glory to God. This morning we consider the question, why do you go to a church that might have hypocrites and learn that Jesus condemned hypocrisy, but that the church rests on the person of Christ and that God is in the transformation business of taking sinners and making them something else. There are thousands of people Thousands of people who don't go to church because they feel it's full of hypocrites. And for many, it's a major obstacle. But in all cases, they don't fully grasp the essence of what the church is about and who Jesus is. And several things I want to point out. The church is filled with sinners, but we're here because of it. We see the need for grace. We see the need for forgiveness. We see the need for relationships that we have to extend it to others as we ask them to extend it to us as well. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good needs, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. The church is a community called to support each other and challenge each other in order to become more and more like Jesus on the basis of Christ. We don't ignore moral standards, but we spur each other on to good works. Now imagine for a moment, there's a person who has a curable form of cancer, but will die if he doesn't get proper medical attention. And someone suggests to him, there are things called hospitals, and they're filled with doctors who can help you with a cure. They know what the cure is, and they can fix it for you. But the man responds, hospitals are filled with quacks. 
My sister went to a hospital and she died from her disease anyway. They're filled with sick people. I'm not going there. We will never hear that argument. And if you do, you're wondering about the question. And yet that's what people are doing when they're saying, I don't go to church because it's filled with hypocrites. We're filled with sinners saved by grace. We're like a hospital. The church is a hospital for our souls filled with people who are spiritually sick, seeking healing through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that we would be that church that can extend God's grace and mercy so that people can see it and be transformed.